Romans 14. Last week we did Romans 14, 1 through 12. We're picking up at verse 13, going to the end of the chapter, Romans 14, 13 to 23. We've been talking about issues that are the non-essentials of the Christian faith, issues that we may disagree about and still be completely united together in the faith. He mentioned a couple of them last week in the pastor with that last week. We talked about the Sabbath regulations and then issues of food. And most likely, which most scholars believe, and I think they're right, is that he has in mind here the agape feasts. The agape feasts. Maybe you've never heard of that before. Uh, love feasts were a very typical thing that the early church celebrated. Um, we actually have them celebrating this. You see the early Christians celebrating this even to a little bit later uh, on church history. Tertullian mentions them. Hippolytus mentions them. Um, they appear really only in one place explicitly in the New Testament, in Jude, but there are a lot of different references, references to it. Sadly, in almost every single case that the love feast is referenced in the New Testament, something is going wrong with it. <laughs> so there's some infighting and divisiveness or false teachers that's going on in Jude have infiltrated the agape feast. Um, but even to today, there are some traditions that have maintained love feasts. They fell off, I think, in the 800s. Um, the Moravians still do love feasts. The Church of the Brethren, Old German Baptists, Dunkard Brethren. Some Methodists still practice love feasts, and it's so somewhat being revived in Anglican churches. Now, we don't do officially do agape feasts here, but we do a lot of things that are similar. Um, we have our fellowship time after the service. Um, we, we might have a coffee hour, which I mistakenly often call a coffee hour, because usually we do it right before, for example, our um, annual meeting, and our, our stewardship group, we will say, if you keep saying coffee hour, right, everyone's going to spend an hour in there before they join us in the meeting. So it's a coffee 15 minutes is what it really should end up being. Uh, but we also have different times we get together, like rally day for our picnic today. So that's one of our agape feasts, you could say. Now, the ironic thing about the agape feast is agape is the word for love. And uh, there are different Greek words for love. You've probably heard this before. But agape really brings out the nature of self-sacrificial love. It's the most common word used to describe Christian love. The love of Jesus for us and the love that we are supposed to share with one another. And here we see in Romans 14 that their love feast ends up being a time of controversy. Where those eat meat, our you know, meat that comes from the sacrificial sacrifices in the temples, are kind of rubbing it in the face, look at me and my Christian freedom, I can do whatever I want. Those who don't eat that meat are looking at those who are eating meat and are judging them, saying, see, they're not really serious Christians. And so their agape feasts end up being a time of division. And what he says here is that Christian love should really be the mark of your faith, not issues of food and Sabbath and other Regulations for Christian love. Look with me in Romans 14, starting at verse 13, going to the end of the chapter. We'll have it on the screen. We read this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy 
the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the preaching and the receiving of his word. This morning, here's where we're going in sermon this morning, 13 to 17. Love, agape, removes stumbling stones. Removes stumbling stones. 18 to 21, love pursues peace and upbuilding. And then the last two verses, 22 to 23, love encourages faith to lead the way. Encourages faith to lead. So first, love removes stumbling stones. Look how he starts off this section. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Of course, by this, he doesn't mean about serious sins or about false teaching. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, very clearly, by the same writer, the Apostle Paul, as well as others like John and Peter and Jude, there is absolutely a place to judge false teaching. To recognize that if somebody is teaching what is dangerously false about God, they need to be removed from the church. Or if somebody is engaged in a blatant sin and is unrepentant after being confronted, and you try to restore that person, then there is a place to judge them and remove them from the church itself. One example, major example, in 1 Corinthians 5, if you want to look that up. What he's talking here again is about non-essential issues or things, honestly, that the Bible is not super clear about, right? So where it's not clear, let's not judge one another. Let's just show a lot of grace. Let's just demonstrate the same grace that we have received from God. And then he says, but rather let us decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So there is a, an intentionality about this. There's a decisiveness about this may not come naturally, we have to intentionally seek to say, I'm not going to put a stumbling stone, a block, in the way of a brother. So the image again is that of walking. We walk with God. Uh, we're continuing on, progressing to the celestial city. We're, we're continuing on in the Christian life. Don't stick a big rock in the road of somebody who's, on, who's walking with the Lord so that they stumble and trip. Don't stick a big log or stick in the way of their walk intentionally seek, if anything, to remove stones and remove hindrances that get in their way of them maturing and growing in the faith. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So Paul says, you really want to know the answer when it comes to these sort of uh, issues of the Sabbath regulations and whether you should eat this meat that was sacrificed to the idols, nothing's unclean. Every day is a day to worship the Lord, and yes, you could eat that meat, it's just it's just a sheep. It's nothing that doesn't become polluted by idol worship. It remains exactly what it is. But it's unclean for someone who thinks it's unclean. We'll come back to this a little bit later on. But if you're acting against your conscience, 
this that he's someone, this is someone who is perhaps newer to the faith. Someone who maybe has just come out of paganism or the world. Somebody who's very sensitive in their conscience. And seeing you, someone they perhaps respect and look up to, eating grieves them, hurts them. Because if you do that, then you're not walking in love. You're not walking in agape. Again, the self-sacrificial love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now by destroy, I don't think he means send them to hell. I don't think he means that we have the power to destroy someone's salvation. But this is a brother or sister for whom Christ died, and you're hurting their faith. You're making it, you're actually making it much difficult for them to continue on and persevere in the faith. 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. You understand that it's clean and you can eat it. Do that in your home. Don't do it in a love feast. Don't do it in a way that's going to cause a problem for others. In the end of this section, verse 17, the kingdom of God isn't about eating and drinking, but about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. As he's talking here about letting love be the primary focus of what we're pursuing. If your main objective in the Christian life is to enjoy your freedom and express your freedom regardless of what anyone else sees or thinks about it, you've missed the point. Right? There are a lot of issues that we could put sort of in this category here, just a few that we could consider. All right, drinking alcohol. You really want to know what the Bible says about alcohol? I'll give you a very clear answer. Jesus drunk wine. All right? So it's pretty obvious his first miracle is to turn water into Wine. That's just the reality. It's part of the Lord's Supper. The Bible never once condemns alcohol, drinking alcohol. It does condemn drunkenness all over the place, all over the Bible, from the Old Testament into the New. But certainly, if you're going to spend time with someone who, let's say, is coming out of alcoholism, you don't need to have your glass of wine. You can pass on that to dinner, right? If you're going to deal with someone who's very sensitive in their conscience in this, you can go without. Or another one would be gambling. Uh, nothing in the Bible says you can't buy a $2 Powerball ticket, okay? Uh, nothing in the Bible says that's a sin and that's wrong. Nothing says you can't go to a casino and spend $100 if you can afford it. Nothing actually says that is a sin. Can it be a sin? Yes. Certainly, it can be a bad, bad stewardship of your resources. Certainly, it can be a point where it becomes an idol in your life. Now, recognizing that you may have brothers and sisters in the same church as you, who struggle with gambling has become a major issue and idol in their life, maybe don't have a poker night in which everybody brings, you know, 100 bucks to spend. Maybe that's not the best way to go about Christian fellowship. You know, a lot of people struggle with pornography, especially men. You look at the statistics, uh, most men, many, many men struggle with pornography. And maybe some really struggle with this and come out of this in their life. Maybe don't have friends over and watch that raunchy Right? Maybe choose something a little better than that. If you be sensitive to the consciences of others, yes, okay, maybe you have the freedom, maybe you can do these things that have, that have no real spiritually negative effects on your life. But you should be acting in Christian love. I remember a, a Christian leader, he wasn't a pastor, but he was a friend of mine at the time, and he would just love to just sort of push his freedom on everyone. He saw it almost like his obligation. Look at me, I'm going to intentionally use profanity. I'm going to intentionally you know, drink something in front of others. I, I want to battle against, in his mind, legalism. 
exactly what he says not to do. Exactly what he says we should avoid doing. Instead, make it about the things that matter most. And what are the things that matter most? Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that sound so much better anyways? I and mean, that's what I want my life to be about right there. Um, we, we have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So understand, this is that balance between the already and the not yet, or what we get on this side of heaven, and yet what we have to still wait for to the other side of heaven. Nobody has complete righteousness. Nobody has peace all the time, 24-7. Nobody is joyful all day long, every single day. Nobody has that. We're not in heaven yet. If somebody claims to be joyful every day, all day, you're lying, okay? Nobody is joyful all the time because we live in a sinful and fallen and broken world. But we do get real righteousness and real peace and real joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not a made-up thing. We really get to enjoy true righteousness. We get to really grow. We get to really leave behind sin. You know, Christian life isn't, uh, look at me, I just can't do anything about it. I'm just a slave to sin. I'm just in bondage to sin. There's nothing I can do. Or me. The Bible says the exact opposite. You are not a slave to sin, and we are not bound by sin. Now, are you ever going to be perfectly righteous? Absolutely not. Not on the side of heaven, outside of your status in Christ. In practice, you'll continue to struggle. But can you grow? Absolutely. In fact, you should be growing. You should not be the same person you were a year ago. You should not be the same person you were five years ago. If you are, then there's something spiritually stunted in your growth. Now, I'm not saying compare yourself to the person next to you. God is working differently in every person, differently in different brothers and sisters. But compare yourself with yourself, and are you maturing and growing in righteousness? My sins don't define me. They don't control me. They don't enslave me. But I'm going to be a sinner until the day I die. Peace. We have peace with God. Peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. We get to enjoy the inner fruit of the Spirit of peace in our lives. Testament describes as shalom. Recognition that God is at all things and is in control. He is good. He is with us. And that peace leads to a peace with others. A church shouldn't be a place where you're constantly fighting with other people, right? Now, again, not on this side of heaven. Uh, there's there's never going to be, a, there's never going to, you're never going to find a church in which there are no conflicts. And you might find a church where there aren't any major conflicts for a little while, maybe even for lengthy period of time. But eventually there will be something that begins to happen because that's what a sinful, broken, fallen world looks like. However, we can live out of the unity that's established for us in Christ. We can enjoy real peace, inner peace, and exterior peace with others. And that most exciting joy. Joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a certain joy that we as Christians get in Christian life. There wasn't I mean, it wouldn't be a universal experience that you find for Christians. There is a joy that we get that you can't get anywhere else but in relationship with God, knowing that He loves you, that you can rest in His grace, that you are with Him, that He'll be with you forever, that even transcends our pain and suffering, so that a sister in Christ can stand up in front of all of us and lift her hands and sing of the goodness of God midst of her bad surgery. Mm. 
we can enjoy the joy of the Holy Spirit. Keep your guys out about food and drinking and rituals and fighting over minor issues. It's about things of far greater value than that. Next he says, love pursues peace and upbuilding. Peace and upbuilding. Look at verse 18. Verse 18. He says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. That's all that really matters. Right? I mean, ultimately, we're all trying to serve before your own master. You stand or fall. Um, we stand. If you're in Christ, your faith is in the perfect Savior. So you are acceptable to God and therefore should be approved by men because what does man really have to say? As we read back in Romans chapter 8, if uh, everyone in this whole world is against us but Christ is for us, that's all that really matters, right? We are proved by God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A reminder of the gospel here. 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. If that's true, that my brother and sister in Christ, even if we disagree on any number of different issues, that they belong to God and they are approved by Him, then we can have peace with one another. And we should pursue then, again, the things that make for peace. Assumption here is peace doesn't automatically happen on us. There should be an intentionality about it. Matthew Henry writes, Many wish for peace and talk loudly for it, who do not follow the things that make for peace meekness, humility, self denial, and love make for peace. You pursue the things that actually make for peace. Verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. If really what we're should pursuing is to edify, to build up one another, to help construct one another's faith, to destroy the work of God is the exact opposite. You're tearing down what God is building. Everything indeed is clean. He emphasizes once again, yes, we are free in Christ, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. The real question is, are you sinning by the way you express your freedom? In 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Better to go without, to resist your freedom, than to cause it to someone else to stumble. As I mentioned last week, there are any number of different issues that fall into this category of the non-essentials of the Christian faith. And the truth of the matter is there should be a certain humility that says we don't know everything. We don't even know close to everything. <laughs> there is so much that we don't understand. Uh, for one, the Bible is clear on certain things. That there is a God who has redeemed us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is fully God and fully man. And on the cross, he pays our debt, he pays the penalty for our sin, that by faith in him our sins are forgiven, that there is a heaven, and that in turn, we will be with him for eternity. The Bible is pretty clear on that. There's not much disagreement anywhere in the Christian faith. You might have some cults that kind of take a, a bit of a different perspective on that, but for the most part, throughout 2,000 years and throughout every culture on the planet, Christians have agreed. That is what the Bible teaches. And then there are so many other issues that the Bible is less clear about. Right? There's so many other issues that they say there's no major doctrine of the Bible that's established by one verse. So even if we had a different interpretation of a single verse, or even a group of verses, any, any serious, important teaching of the Christian faith is well established well beyond a simple handful of verses. But there are a lot of different issues that we say, look, I don't know. I, 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 I may be right, I may be wrong, I'm not 100% sure. And that certain humility, that humility about understanding, should lead us to say, I can show a lot of grace to someone who doesn't agree. So, if I die, 
and I get to heaven, and I talk to Jesus, and he says, Rick, just so you know, you could have baptized babies. <laughs> I'll say, oh, wow, that's a surprise for me. I, I was pretty sure that the Baptist view was correct. The Bible says, repent, believe, and be baptized. There's no evidence of a single baby being baptized anywhere in the Bible. But I guess what? I was wrong. The Presbyterians, the Methodists, they were all right on that issue. I could be wrong. I don't think I am. I'm just saying I could be wrong on that issue. Right? I mean, when the Bible talks about the specifics of the end time, you're looking primarily at the book of Revelation, the most symbolic book of the Bible that is written primarily in apocalyptic language. Of course, we're not going to necessarily agree. Is Christ returning physically, visibly? Yes. The specifics of that, let's hold it a little looser. Let's recognize that Christian love would show a lot of grace. Uh, another one, you know, I heard this joke before where this priest, um, of course, priests you know, don't get married, he dies, he gets to heaven, and he asks, the first thing he says is, can I see heaven's library? And he says, yes, go ahead, go to the library. And he's in there for 15 minutes, and all of a sudden he starts moaning. Oh no, oh no. And so Peter, you know, that's the story we go, runs in. What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And he says, this is our. It's celebrate. Celebrate. <laughs> yes, I believe that clergy can get married, obviously. I have a wife and two kids, so in the Baptist tradition, that is the case. Although here in New England, I do get called Father Rick quite a bit, so that's happening here. You can show a lot of grace on issues that are non-essential. There's a certain humility about it. Pursue the things that lead to peace. Pursue humility. Pursue self-sacrifice. Pursue the things that lead to someone else's being built up. Now understand, again, he's not leaving room here for the legalist. That's a big difference. If somebody is new to the Christian faith, they're sensitive to their conscience, they're coming out of a difficult situation from this world, we give them a lot of grace, we don't have to express our freedom in front of them. That's very different than someone who's a bully. Mm -hmm. It's very different than someone who is a legalist and trying to force their way upon a church family, which happens all the time in different churches. This is the only right way to do things. If you don't sing only hymns from 200 years ago, <laughs> you're not being spiritual. Or, the opposite, if you sing those ancient hymns as an unspiritual dead church, only the contemporary music is spiritual. Right? I mean, it's different. One of the examples that came up uh, during the devotional throughout the week was uh, wearing baseball caps during the service. And I don't want to offend anyone. No one's wearing a baseball cap. Good. Oh, one, 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 one. Church every single week, maybe three or four of them. Yeah. 
professors even say things like, why you do something is irrelevant. And we've met managers that you don't do anything that harms another. The motive makes no difference to anyone in that whole system. In Christianity, it's not that case at all. In fact, we make a very big deal about motives. Why we do something is as important, and sometimes perhaps even more important, than what we do. Because why you do something begins to determine everything
think we can so easily miss the forest from the trees. And you've probably heard that phrase before, I think. It's a pretty common one. Uh, we are so focused on one small little segment that we miss the big picture. We're so willing to argue and fight about something so small that we're missing Christian love. The truth of the matter is, the world around us, speaking of evangelism, the world around us is not really that interested in our fights about what version of the Bible you use or whether you're a pre-mill, post-mill, or homin. The real question is, do you love them? so much for your word. Thank you so much for this truth. Help us to study, read, meditate on this word. But help us to live it out in sincere faith. But we can't do that. We can't do it by our own power. We can't do it by our own strength. We need your grace. And we're going to mess up. And when we mess up, we look to you. Turn to your repentance and faith, and we get back up and let the grace of God continue on. Thank you, Father, for this church family. Thank you for Christian love. Let our fellowship today and ongoing at the cafe and all of our get-togethers and this afternoon and picnic be a true agape feast, a time in which we enjoy a meal, but self-sacrificial love is on display to you. Jesus' name we pray.